Welcome to the First Down Rundown podcast, where we give you a holistic view of the world of sports. Whether you're a casual fan or an avid fan, this is the place for you. You may notice that uh, this is not the normal voice that you hear at the beginning of all these podcasts, and that is because it is just Matt today. Matt Vozar, I am your co-host, although, you know, the fact that Aiden's not here, I might as well just be the host at this point, right? I mean, he seems like he's always gone. No, just kidding. Uh, Hayden's actually on a cruise, so he's enjoying his time. Uh, he, he just finished up his semester, um, so I'm here to hold down the fort, which, you know, obviously, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's what we all want, right? So, I mean, it's, it's not really changing much here, right? But, uh, but yeah. So, so we are here today to talk about really everything going on in the world of sports, and there's so much, right? So, so I'm super excited to get into everything. As you saw in the title, we're doing talking NBA, we're going to be talking NFL, we're going to be talking NHL, and a little PGA at the end because obviously there's a major championship this week, so we got to fit it in there uh, at the end. So, so it'll be it'll be a jam-packed episode, um, but that's good because that's what we're here for. Uh, like I said, you know, avid fan or serious fan, we are. Fan, uh, we got you. So, um, overall, though, and this was the case, I think, two weeks ago, there are so many different sporting events just throughout the rest of this week, as well as especially this weekend, right? So, so you have obviously the NBA playoffs and the NHL playoffs. The NBA playoffs are starting the conference finals. The, the the Heat and the Celtics tip off tonight to start Game One, and then the Mavericks and the Warriors start Game One uh, of theirs tomorrow on Wednesday. And then obviously you have the the second round of the NHL playoffs are starting tonight as well. And then you know they're going to kind of be continuing on throughout the week as well. Um, and then it kind of, you know, just chronologically here, you have the PGA Championship at Southern Hills starting on Thursday morning. That goes all the way through Sunday, obviously. Uh, you also have horse racing once again. We had the Kentucky Derby a couple weeks ago. We have the Preakness Stakes this coming Saturday. Uh, so that's going to, it's essentially, you know, the second biggest horse race in the world uh, uh, occurring on Saturday. And then obviously on Sunday as well, you have, uh, well, the next day on Sunday, uh, you have the, Sp- the Spanish Grand Prix. So F1 is, is, uh, is to, you know, after their kind of one week break, uh, they're back in Spain. Now they were in Miami, traveled all the way, you know, they're, they're in Spain this week. Um, so, so really, you have all your bases covered. And then, of course, there's baseball going on, but, eh, you know, baseball's always going on. So we have the whole summer to worry about baseball. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so you have so many sports to watch, and there's just so much going on. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's great to be a sports fan this time of year because, obviously, yes, there's no football going on besides the coveted U- USFL uh, league, which is now, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like not really anybody's watching or paying attention, but that's another topic for another day. Um, football, in terms of the NFL, is not going on, but there's still been news recently, and we're going to talk about a couple of those things as well. Uh, so let's start the podcast. I feel like I've, you know, I feel like I've, I've been I've been rambling on here for the last ten minutes, but it's because I love sports, and there's so much to talk about in sports for this week. So uh, let's just get right into it. We're talking about the NBA. You read it in the title. Luka Doncic. He played out of his absolute ever loving mind, uh, especially in Game 7, but but kind of just throughout the series against the Suns, and as you may recall, that was, you know, the Suns 
team who had the best record in the NBA by far was blowing teams out during the regular season. They got the number one seed in the West. It, it, everybody's saying they're going to walk through the playoffs and, you know, automatic trip to the finals. They'll probably win the finals because of how close they were last year and, and obviously got beat, you know, solely because, uh, you know, because Giannis decided to, to, decided to become the Greek god, which he already was. Uh, but basically, you know, go even more so, uh, you know, to, to give the Bucks their first championship in, in almost 40 years. We saw Luka Doncic just really carry this team, okay? And so what we've been hearing, though, especially across the last few years, is that he needs some help, okay? Because here, I'm just going to give a rundown of, of essentially what the, you know, his first three years in the league uh, were like and, and kind of how they ended. Obviously, during the regular season, he's unstoppable. He scores a bunch of points. He has a bunch of triple-doubles. He, he, he's on all these lists of, like, you know, he, he, he's like the youngest person to be achieving all of these, you know, all of these uh, awards and, and, and stats and features and whatever. Like, even younger than LeBron was doing a lot of this stuff. So, so I mean, even, even just beyond what he was doing uh, against the Suns in, in game six and seven here, um, you know, he's, he's obviously been quite the player uh, for the last three years ever since he was drafted in the league. However, though, his first two seasons, they got to the playoffs both years, but both of them actually ended in first round losses to the Clippers. The uh, 2019 was, or 2020, uh, was in game six against the Clippers in the first round. 2021 was in game seven against the Clippers in the first round. So it's like, you know, he, the, the Mavs just keep getting, you know, keep getting matched up against the, this, this Clippers team, who was who was tough, right? Because we think about it, that, that team had Kawhi Leonard, had Paul George. Obviously, both of those guys were hurt for the majority of the season. Kawhi didn't even play a single second of NBA basketball this season. In past years, though, they've had that team, you know, really riding strong together, and they were, you know, they were a legit threat. And so, obviously, you know, when Luca doesn't really have too much on the team with him, and, and he's kind of the only only player there, and you have, you know, two NBA superstars in, in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard on the other side, you're, you're probably going to lose those series, right? And so now this year. Somehow they don't run into the Clippers, right? You, you get the Jazz in the first round, which, as we discussed in an earlier episode of the podcast already, the Jazz are just a, a, a an organization that's falling apart at the seams, right? I mean, you have all the tension between the two best players, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, and and, and you know one of those guys, one of those guys will potentially move, and if they don't, they're still going to kind of not like each other, and, and you know, and despite all the three point shooting and Jordan Clarkson's winning six man a year like three years in a row. There's there's definitely trouble brewing in Utah. So a lot of people could have seen the fact that hey, basically, the Mavericks just you know are not uh, you know are not fighting internally, so they can probably beat the Jazz, right? And that's exactly what happened. Then they go up against the Suns, who everybody thought was just boat race for the Suns, right? No shot. Like whether the Suns played the Jazz or the Mavs, whoever won that series, they're they're basically earning an automatic bid to the Western Conference Finals. And so we saw kind of this, you know, this obviously transition. And I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna give a synopsis of every single game here because clearly we know what happened. What I wanted to focus in on though is a lot of people are saying that this team, the Mavericks, could become a a legit you know threat to win the championship every you know, a dynastic team if the Mavericks just put some decent players around Luka 
right? So so you have Spencer Dinwiddie who who you know scored thirty points in, in game seven. You have Jalen Brunson who in a game that Luka Doncic didn't play earlier in the earlier in the playoffs, Jalen Brunson went off for like forty two points, right? So you have uh, you know Kleber, he's been hitting threes like off the wall, right? You have Thomas Bertans, he's also been hitting threes off the wall. So so it, it's it's I think a combination of you know. Yes, a, a lot of these guys aren't, you know, nobody really knows who they are, but somehow they're still able to win these games. That doesn't really answer the question, though, of like, hey, what could this team potentially be, right? Because it all, for all intents and purposes, yes, I, I do think it's going to be a, a challenge for the Warriors to, to you know, to kind of figure out how they're going to, you know, beat this match team who's clearly on a roll, but I would say, I mean, the Warriors are heavily favored to win that series. I would be extremely surprised if the Mavs were able to win this series, but, but a lot of people are saying, right, you know, this could be a team that is, you know, getting to the finals every year if Luka just had some help. My question is, though, is this really true, right? Is, is, is the fact that, you know, we're, we're just saying... Okay, well, as long as you get Luca some help, you know, as long as he has a, a solid number two player uh, to kind of, you know, to kind of just boost the team overall and just give him some more opportunities to, to score and assist and whatever it may be, that's the answer to this question as to whether or not the Mavs could, you know, could actually, you know, kind of come back into relevance in terms of being a legit threat to win a championship, obviously 10 years after they did uh, with Dirk Nowinski back in 2011. I don't think it's that simple. I'm just going to say it outright. Okay, and I'm going to focus in a little bit here on the style of play with which Luca plays. <laughs> um, it's it's very ball dominant, and we know that. He he has the ball in his hands every single time that the, you know, the, the ball comes up the court. And, I mean, you're going to, you know, the simple thing here is like, okay, well, Matt, yeah, duh. Who else would you want to have the ball in your hands? Because clearly... Anyone else in the entire playoffs? Maybe you could make an you could make an argument for Giannis, but like out of any other player in the entire playoffs right now, you want the hands you want the ball in the hands of Luka Doncic coming up the court and just for the for the you know multitude of possibilities that could happen uh, you know based on the way that he plays. But that's kind of what I'm trying to get at here is that the way that he plays, yes, he scores a lot. Yes, he he contributes to the team a lot. But what I'm saying is, because a lot of people are saying, like I said, you know, we got to get some players around around Luka. we got to get some scores. we got to get some some ball-dominant, you know, bigs and, and, and power forwards so that so that they can kind of, you know, work in tandem and, and, and really make this thing shine. Because obviously Luka's the guard in this, in this scenario. But, like, my thing is, if you're going to get a player who's a good scorer, who, you know, who, who, who can provide a lot more, I guess, assistance or, or, or take the pressure off of Luka just a little bit, chances are that player, whoever it may be, is, is a proven scorer in the NBA and will make this team better. Okay, great. On the surface, though, on the surface, and that's because if you have a player like that, they're going to need the ball as well. Okay, because we see in today's NBA, it's very offensively focused. Okay, and so you, if you have this scenario where you know, get get Luca a number two guy because because he needs that in order for this team to succeed. Well, you know, I think just based on the way that he plays, he's the reason that they've gotten this far. Yes, but if there's another guy out there who's who's basically you know splitting the the, the you know the, the time of possession the usage rate um, in half with with Luca already you know kind of dominating the ball and whatever how much would that actually impact the team positively I don't think it would be necessarily a you know an immediate positive impact obviously it depends on the type of player that you get right so if you're gonna get a spot-up shooter right like someone like 
like Clay Thompson, obviously this would never happen in real life, but just just kind of thinking here, you know, thought experiment wise, if you're going to get Luca, you know, a guy like Clay Thompson who is, you know, you know, ferocious on the defensive end, and then is basically, you know, doesn't need the ball in his hands on offense to still perform at an all-star level. That's probably ideal. However, there's not a lot of players out there in the NBA right now like Clay Thompson. That's why, you know, we think of him as such a great, you know, asset to, to, to you know, just the way that he plays. And so, Realistically, if you're the Mavs and you gotta spend, you know, spend your money on contracts for other guys and also Luca, um, you can't really go out and get a superstar who's like that. And really, Clay Thompson is the only superstar that's kind of like a, you know, a spot-up shooter who's also great on defense. We're the only in the NBA that I can think of, right? Because if you think about the all the other great scorers, great scorers. It's because they create. They need the ball in their hands, and that's basically what Luca is. So, and some, some, you know, some big men kind of say, like, like, right, like, you know, we talked about Rudy Gobert before. You know, that's that's also an option. But like, Rudy Gobert, because he's so good. He's going to need to take some shots. Obviously, he's he's you know known more for his defensive capabilities, but you got to get you if you're going to pay that much for a an all-star big man, he has to take some shots. Otherwise, you know what's the point of him playing, right? He he's not going to want to you know play that way. Um, and so that's kind of the problem that you run in here with the Luca argument is like, and that's why I call it the Luka Doncic paradox is because it's like this team is so successful because Luca always has the ball in his hands, and because he's so creative. And because he's so just able to hit those step back shots, no matter you know who's guarding him, not only does that you know create obviously a, you know it makes it tough on the defense because it's tough to guard him in general. But then you work in the other three point shooters in that offense, and that's what's making this thing run. Okay, but if you add someone else who who is used to having the ball in their hands, who in their hands, who is just as creative, maybe even a little bit less, but still kind of needs that you know that ability to function in an offense like this. I don't know how much that would work, man, because I, I, I think that there's a cap of this, right? Because there's a, I think there's a cap on how much on how much Luca, you know, kind of it warrants, it, you know, how much Luca can be warranted to share the ball in order for the team to be even more successful than it already is. Because I think it's successful. It's successful because of Luca. So if you add someone else, how much more successful can it get when Luca, who's the best player and for good reason, has the ball in his hands all the time? He's giving the ball away now. Right to other people and whoever that may be, whatever. So that's kind of where it's tough. And I don't really, you know, I don't really have a, a, a specific answer to what the Maverick should do in this situation. But I think that I kind of just wanted to shed some light on on how it's a little bit more complicated than just okay, grab another superstar from a or, you know a, a, a great number two uh, player f- from another team. Throw them on the Mavericks and they're going to win the championship. I don't think it's that simple. Um, I think that they're going on an insane hot streak when it comes to shooting. We saw that in the Suns game, you know, Game Seven. Obviously, you know, the, I, I'm not even going to spend too much time on the Suns um, right now because we're going to we're going to talk about them in a little bit here. But um, you you can't you can't really. You can't have too many ball-dominant scores in offense, which is so successful already with a one of the extremely ball-dominant scorer. Um, and so that's kind of my argument here. Again, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I don't necessarily have an answer as to what the Mavs should do. It's going to be interesting to see what they do, if anything, um, because clearly the team's not going to win a championship like it is right now. And if they do, I'm, I'll come on here and, and I'll eat my words all day long, and that would be amazing. I'd love to see that happen because, you know, right, nobody would expect that to happen. Um, but, but 
just the way that the NBA works nowadays. Like you can't just win the championship just because you know one guy has the ball all the time. And so because of that, the Mavs are kind of capped at like they're not going to be able to win a championship when they just have Luca. Okay, so get him some scores, get him some ball dominant you know guards and, and forwards or whatever it may be. Well. If you get some ball dominant, you know, if you get other ball dominant players, Luca's not going to have the ball as much, and he's your best player. You want him to have the ball. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's kind of like, I feel like it's almost like a cap either way. Like, I, I don't think this team can really get better, uh, you know, just keeping Luca and nobody else, but I also don't think they'll be better magically by adding people who will then take the ball away from Luca a little bit more. So so that's my Luca take. It's a paradox. It's tough to kind of decipher. It'll be interesting to see what the Mavs do. Again, hopefully, you know, we can see them be competitive again in this Warriors series. I do think, you know, I mean, it's not going to, it's not like the Warriors are going to sweep them by any means, but it, it would be great to, to see the Mavs get to the finals. And again, if they do, at that point, honestly, maybe this whole argument is basically for naught, because at that point, clearly it's working with just having Luka, and you can just keep on, keep on going, uh, going that way. So now I'm going to transition into the team that the Mavericks beat which is the Suns, and we saw another epic collapse by the Phoenix Suns this season after, you know, and I said this a couple episodes ago, okay, we got to think about how the Suns got here, which is the bubble, 2020, they go to the bubble, they went 8-0 in the bubble, because again, they had to kind of finish the regular season, and then they had the playoffs starting also in the bubbles, a little bit weird, but the Suns went to the bubble, they went 8-0 and to finish the regular season, and they didn't make the playoffs, right? And everybody's like, this team, you know, won so many games in the bubble, they should deserve a spot in the playoffs. Well, here's the thing. They were terrible enough during the regular season to where even winning eight straight games and other teams losing games, they still didn't earn a spot in the playoffs. So, so they rightfully should not have been in the playoffs that year. Obviously, the next year, they get Chris Paul, and they're up 2-0 in the NBA Finals, likely on their way to an NBA championship. I mean, just imagine that time type of, you know, that type of ascension in such a, in such a short time period, right? Um, and so that's kind of what we ended up with here, and and obviously, like, I, I mean, right, you know, they're up 2-0 in the finals, obviously they lose because Giannis went crazy last year, they come into this year, same team, they're running it back, they get the number one seed, they have the best record in the NBA, and then, you know, a collapse like this. And so, Everyone likes to dump on CP3, right, Chris Paul, because he yet again lost a playoff series after being up 2-0. This is, I think, the fifth in his career, um, and it's kind of spread out across, you know, all the teams that he's been on. He, he even had one with the, the the New Orleans Hornets. That was like almost 15 years ago at this at this point. Um, he had, you know, he had a couple with the Clippers. He had obviously last year in the, in the NBA Finals, the Suns were up 2-0, and the Bucks won four straight. Um, and then obviously, you know, this this one as well. The you know the Suns were up 3-2. Mavs win Game Six at home. They come into Game Seven uh, in Phoenix and absolutely destroy the Suns. So. For anyone who watched that Game 7, though, and, and really followed the series as a whole, there's clearly more going on behind the scenes here than what meets the eye. And so the question I'm going to kind of try to answer here now, right now, is, is what happened to the Suns in this series, and could this potentially be the end of their run? I know that sounds a little bit, you know, a little bit, a little bit forecasting, a little bit too far, but I'm... I think I can make a pretty solid argument for it, okay? So obviously, Chris Paul is my, I mean, uh, not obviously, because you guys don't know, but newsflash, Chris Paul is my favorite player ever. I am a New Orleans Pelicans fan simply because when I first started to really watch the NBA, it was when Chris Paul played for the New Orleans Hornets way back when, like 15 years ago, 
And I'm not one of those like bad bandwagon people, you know, teams where I just I, I always just love the team that my favorite player is on and whatever. So so I stuck with it. I stuck with the Pel- I stuck with the Hornets. Then you know then they transitioned to you know to New Orleans now they're the Pelicans. Well, there was a lot of changes, but but here I am. And obviously hopefully we can get uh, we can get Zion back for next year. That's a whole other topic for a different day though. Um, Chris Paul's my favorite player. I, I think he's the most talented point guard for his size in NBA history. I, I just think that everything he's able to do, you watch him play, he's just so good. He hits circus shots. He, he gets fouled. He goes to the line. He hits three-pointers. He hits those mid-range jumpers that is honestly like a failing part of today's game, to be honest. I, I mean, we've seen epic performances from Chris Paul uh, throughout, la- obviously, last year's playoffs. You know, he was really the reason that that team was able to rally and, and even get get anywhere and obviously they were you know on their way to winning an NBA championship uh, stopped only by Giannis this year like I said, you know, best team in the league in the regular season, even throughout the playoffs. You know, they played the Pelicans and honestly got a little bit, you know, it, it, it was a little bit of a scare uh, there, you know, when they were playing the Pelicans, went to six games and, and, and almost went to game seven. But, like, in a closeout game in that series, Chris Paul was 14 for 14 from the field. He had, like, 33 points, it, it, like, no turnovers. It, it's, it's crazy what this guy is able to do. And so he's such a good player. But obviously, everybody's only going to the point to the fact that, like, A, he has no rings, B, he's only even been to the finals once, and that was last year, in which he blew a 2-0 lead, which is what he's, you know, famous for doing. There were all those seasons with the Clippers, you know, with Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan and J.J. Redick, where you had, you know, such a great, you know, solid foundation of a team. Doc Rivers is their head coach. They never, you know, they would get to the Western Conference Finals and just lose. Now, obviously, you know, the back end of that, uh, you know, was, was, was against the Warriors, who became a dynasty in and of themselves. So, you know, there's there's a little bit to, uh, you know, there's a little bit to unpack there too, but Chris Paul also has been blamed for essentially getting hurt at the worst possible times. And so a lot of what happens is when he has these, you know, these series where everybody's saying, oh, he choked, right? The, he folded in that series. Well, it was because he got hurt and, and you can't really do anything about that. Um, and clearly, like, he's not getting hurt on purpose. Like, there's no, you know, there's no way that, like, the, the, the thing that he wants most in this world is to win an NBA championship and finally get a ring. There's no way that he'd be faking an injury or, or you know, getting, like, putting himself in a position where he would, you know, more than likely get hurt just so that the narrative can be there in case they, you know, end up blowing the series. And that's nonsense, right? Um, but I'm thinking a little bit deeper about this, all right? So what happened to the Suns in this series? Because they were rolling. They were averaging, you know, 110-plus points every single game. We see in Game 7, they scored 27 points in a single half. Uh, it was actually crazy. After the game, a reporter asked Luka, because Luka had 27 points at the half, as did the entire Suns team, right? They asked Luka, you know, how do you feel about scoring just the same amount of points, uh, you know, in this in this first half, uh, you know, than the, as the, as the Suns' entire team, and he's like, yeah, of course I did. And it's like, I mean, his confidence is just off the wall right now. Obviously, you know, deservedly so, but, like, where did the Suns' scoring go? They were shooting horribly, right? And that happens in basketball. It's the reason that we have seven-game series is because one team's going to go on a run, one team's going to get really hot shooting, and therefore, you know, you have to win multiple games throughout an entire series in order to prove that you are truly the better team despite the ebbs and flows that can come, you know, which is nature in the game of basketball, uh, whether that be, you know, 
just, you know, one team falling apart on defense, one team just shooting the lights out of the ball, whatever it may be, right? And so, in this game, clearly, I think it was just the Suns had a terrible shooting performance, and the Mavericks had an amazing shooting performance. But, like, the Suns are so much better than the Mavericks. We can't just say, oh, well, the, the Mavericks just shot better. Okay, but it's, again, it's a seven-game series. It's a closeout game seven at home for Phoenix, the best team in the NBA in the regular season, the favorites to win the championship last year and this year. We can't just be like, oh, man, that sucks. Like, you know, you just you just got outshot by the Mavericks. As I mentioned before with the Luka argument, who are the players on the on, you know, on the Mavericks that are basically just dismantling this Suns team who was the best in the regular season and the favorites to win the championship? It's Thomas Bertans. It's Maxi Kleber, all right? These guys are not supposed to be winning a closeout game seven on the road against the best team in the NBA, okay? So what I'm thinking is something's going on here behind the scenes, and I think I know what it is. Um, Monty Williams, who is the coach of the Phoenix Suns, was asked why DeAndre Ayton, who is, you know, their big man, drafted number one overall, you know, three years ago, um, and he has really come into his own, especially since Chris Paul got there, he played 17 minutes in the entire game, okay, in the NBA game is 48 minutes, and he's, you know, essentially, I would say Chris Paul and Devin Booker are probably their best, their best players, just because, from a scoring standpoint, but, I mean, DeAndre Ayton's one of the big, best big men in the league right now, right, he played 17, he played, you know, a quarter of the game, less than, you know, just over a quarter of the game, you know, what's the reason for that? And Monty Williams, their, their head coach, was just like, he literally his answer was, it's internal, which is a little bit concerning because, I mean, what could that, what could that mean, right? I mean, so we did see that, I think it was, I think it was like, it was like not even the first quarter was over yet, and, and, and Aiden had already had three fouls, right? So clearly, yes, you're not going to want him to play a lot of the second quarter because if you're going to make a comeback in this game, you're going to need DeAndre Aiden out, on the, out there on the floor, and if he starts the second half with five fouls, there's no chance, right, that, that he's going to be there. And, and as great as I, you know, as much as I love JaVale McGee and Bismack Biombo, uh, you know, they, they're no great substitute um, for, for DeAndre Aiden at this point in their, in their respective careers. So it's like, what's happening here? I don't know, but that's kind of the answer I think that was that was not really reported on as much, but is really the truth. Is like whatever is going on here is internal. There's something going on within the team, whether that be you know certain players not liking each other, not liking the you know the front office, the organization, the coach. I don't know. Uh, and I'm not, you know, we're never really going to know unless it comes out and, you know, someone leaks it or, or whatever. But I think that's that's the that's the issue here is like something happened in the locker room. Something happened with this team to really knock them off their rocker and allow them to be so vulnerable, uh, you know, to be in a position like being up 2-0 and then losing the series, being up 3-2 and losing two straight games, especially, you know, a closeout game seven at home. Um we don't see this these types of performances from teams that are supposed to be you know the best team in the NBA, the favorite to win the championship, running it back after making it to the finals and, and you know losing basically on, a, on on Giannis's magic, uh, you know last year in the finals. So that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Is like you know is there something behind the scenes? I think there is, and if that's the case, what else can they do, right? Because you think about it this way too, like you know you have Chris Paul and Devin Booker. 
and DeAndre Ayton, you know, that, that that's your, those are three, you know, those are good, a good top three players to have. You also have Cam Johnson, who's, you know, who's, you know, an electric three-point shooter. Mikhail Bridges, uh, you know, played the most minutes out of anybody on the team this entire season. I think he played every single game um, for, for the Suns this year. He's, he's, a, he's a great defender. So you have everything, you know, with this team that would make the team feel like, you know, and, and, and look like a team that should win the NBA championship, but just completely folded in this Game 7 opportunity. And I talked about the Jazz earlier, okay, because it, it's it's come out at this point that Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert don't really like each other, and, and the coach, you know, Quinn, Quinn Snyder, um, you know, he's been the coach there for a while. I think he's like the third longest tenured head coach with a single team, like behind like Eric Spolstra, and and, and I don't even I don't even know who else. You guys are probably like, dude, it's this guy, Matt. You suck. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I mean, Quinn Snyder's been there forever. He's built this team from the ground up. They had the number one seed. Last year, they were the best team in the West. Didn't get, you know, didn't make it out of the second round. So, like, almost the same type of thing. And I think that's kind of what we're faced with here: is 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 a team that almost peaked too early, and now with all the expectations and, and, and all the pressure to run it back, and the and you know, basically everyone's saying that that's a, a lock to happen. They just ran into a situation where, like, I, I, it might have been too much. There, you know, maybe some players were upset with each other. I don't know what happened, but. We kind of look at the at the structure of this team, and the team was basically the same, you know, for the last few years. What I mentioned before was that essentially, you know, they right, they won eight straight games in the bubble. They didn't make the playoffs. The very next year, they're up 2-0 in the NBA Finals with a good chance to close it out, and they don't obviously. But what's the you know what's the major difference there? It's Chris Paul, and so this guy who, like I said, you know, he's my favorite player. He, he's he's you know perennial NBA All Star for a reason. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame for a reason. But like he's 37, he's gonna be turning 38, and he, you know, in the press conference after a press conference, he's like, "Oh, there's no, there's no chance. I'll be back for sure." And it's like, yeah, but you know, you're only going to be older, right? And so this team that had so much promise, had so much hope last year after you know losing in, in such a heartbreaking fashion in the finals to you know like the better team in the Bucks, um, was supposed to come back this year and really make it right, and and they didn't even get the chance to make it out of the second round of the playoffs. So I'm not predicting the end of their run, but I think they're going to need to fix some things because it seems like you know quite a few things went wrong at the end of the season. You know this year obviously in the playoffs and. You know, again, as much as I, as much as I, you know, was loving about Luca in, in the last segment that I was talking about, he, like that team, should not just automatically, you know, be be beating the Suns I, I, by any means. And so that's kind of where I'm thinking, you know, this this might be cause for concern a little bit for the Suns here. Let's see if they can, you know, if they can pick themselves up and, and hopefully run it back next year and really finish what they came here to do. All right, and now we're going to move into the NFL. So the schedule was released last Thursday. Um, it, it, it was a it was a big event, right? I mean, they you know they televised it. They did the whole release, and every team did their own kind of fun, you know, schedule release video thing. A lot of them were kind of weird, but um, anyway, uh, it, it, I just find this this whole thing so funny because, and, and I'm going to explain myself a little bit here, but. Like, here's the deal. After the last regular season game is played, right, of the pre- of the previous season, you already know exactly what teams you're playing for the for the next year. Okay, every team knows what teams they're playing, and the reason for this, if if, if you know, if you don't know, is because obviously you have 
three games against each of the other, you know, well, two games against each of the other three opponents in your division. So that's so that's six games automatically that you know exactly who you're playing, what team you're playing, uh, you know, and, and, and all that. You then know that each team plays an entire division outside of what their, you know, their division is as well. Okay, so, and that's a little confusing, but let me explain a little bit. So, and forgive me, I don't exactly know what divisions are playing each other, you know, this year and, and whatnot, but like, you know, I'm, I'm a Packers fan, right? And so, last year, the Packers played the entire NFC, or AFC North, excuse me, right? So, they, they played the Browns, they played the Steelers, the Ravens, and the Bengals, right? And they also played the NFC West, okay? So, they played the Rams, and they played the Cardinals, and they played the 49ers, and, uh, and the Seahawks. So... The, the, and that's you know that's eight games plus six games is you know is, is fourteen and then the other ones are already decided obviously you know pre pre season after the other you know regular season games are gone and, and it's a little weird now because there's seventeen games you know eighteen week season one week by we get all that but I just find it so funny how all the you know all the teams all the fans I, this just made a huge media event just to like see the order in which you play those teams and and you know and, and when it happens now again. Uh, and so you're probably saying, Matt, like, that's the most important part. Like, yeah, clearly you know what teams you're going to play, but, like, when do you play them? You want to go to the games. You want to see, you know, see how your schedule lines up. You want to walk through the wins and losses, uh, you know, in your, uh, in, in your head. Yes, I get that. I just think it's funny how everybody makes such a big deal of, like, who am I going to play? Well, you already know who you're going to play. You know what teams you're going to play. Yes, the order matters. Right, the home and away games matter. The timing of the games matter. You know, could be in prime time, could be in you know a regular one o'clock slate, could be in London, could be in Germany. We got a game in Germany this year, right? Could be in Mexico. So it's like you know, obviously there's a lot. You know, there's a lot going on there in terms of where and when the games are being played. But I think an underrated part of the NFL schedule release, which you know isn't really talked about too much, because for the for the general fans, it's like you just want to see who your team is playing, right? But and because I'm kind of you know I'm I'm pretty into betting, especially on football. One thing that's kind of come out a little bit this year, more than others, is that a lot of teams are really getting screwed by the schedule. And, and so essentially, the way that the that the NFL you know basically just makes the schedule is you know it's basically, it's just a computer algorithm, right? So so they throw all the teams into you know in, into this big spreadsheet. You know they, they run a bunch of algorithms. They press enter and it just spits out a schedule, right? And so they run this however many times or whatever, and they get the schedule and it is what it is. Obviously, from the NFL's perspective, it's a business, right? The NFL is a business, and what do businesses want to do? They want to make money, and so the way to make the most money is to have the best teams playing the other best teams in prime time so that people are watching because you want to get views, you want to get ratings, and you want to have your fans obviously, you know, watching the game. So what happens though, it, it kind of as a result of that, is that the lesser teams or, you know, the teams that aren't going to be as good or, or even some of the teams that are going to be great, um, kind of suffer at the expense of not only the you know the, the order in which they're playing the, the, those respective teams but also the you know kind of how the schedule works out in terms of when you're playing those games okay and and this is kind of you know as examples you know if you're playing a Thursday night game and then you play a Sunday night game you know the, the next week 
but the team that you're playing, you know, had a Monday night game from that from that same week, and they're playing again on Sunday. You know, you're playing them on Sunday as well. You get basically three more days of rest than that other team, and, and obviously, you know, you're thinking, oh, whatever. Like Matt, you know, the, the season is like you know six months long. You, you got you got plenty of rest in there. Well, yes, but again, it's football, and if you've heard any football players talk about their experience playing football and, and just you know, kind of their during the week and what they go through. Every football player, and this is like across the board, you can look this up, like it is, it is a known fact, every single football player says that the day after a game, it feels like you were in the worst car accident of your life, just because of the hitting and the brutality and how hard you're going for those 60 minutes that you play the game, that's what you're dealing with, okay? And so when you put that in combination with teams that are getting an extra three days of rest, it actually can have some pretty big effects, I think. And so, I, you know, just a couple of a couple of kind of nuggets that I found, you know, throughout the throughout the NFL schedule that I think are just a little bit, you know, a little bit crazy. So, kind of, you know, to kind of go off of the example of what I just said about teams coming off Thursday games, which obviously allow them for more rest. The Washington Commanders, who I think probably got the screwed the worst, right? They are playing. They're in a four-game stretch after Week Ten, which again, you know, this is more than halfway through the season when, uh, you know, your bodies are tired already. You got players who are hurt. If they play a lot more, they might get even more hurt, right? So, so you're kind of you're in the in the grueling part of the season. So this is after Week Ten. The Commanders play four straight games against teams that are coming off of a Thursday night game. That's insane. Like what? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, right, you, you never know what's going to happen. You know, teams can have good games or bad games. Some of them are home, some of them are away. You never know. But, like, just from a fairness standpoint, you can't – I just feel like that's so – you know, that, I, I just feel like that's unfair, right? Um, and, and obviously, you know, there's 32 teams – there's 32 locations, there's London games, there's Mexico games. There, there's a lot that they have to fit into this, and so yes, not every team is going to play, oh, you're going to be home this game, and then you're going to be away for the next game, but it's not going to be too far of a travel, and also we're playing 1 o'clock every week. No, obviously, again, like I said, the NFL's a business, okay? And so sometimes the players get screwed by that because, you know, obviously, you know, they're making money if the NFL's making money, and so therefore, you kind of got to play when the NFL tells you to play. But I think that that's just kind of an underrated portion of this whole schedule release thing, and, and, and you know, how everyone's making such a big deal out of it because like I feel like there is you know some truth value to the fact that like this could really impact a team season it could impact how many games they win and thus whether or not they really make the playoffs so again I don't think it's going to be you know it's not necessarily something that's, you know when, when, we're, when we're faced you know when we're in January and we're faced with all the you know possibilities for who's making the playoffs we're not going to be saying oh well this team played on you know played on 10 days of rest and this team played on one you know it's, it's, it's not going to come down to that but I think that you know it, it just gets blown up blown out of proportion like oh you know this team is playing this team that's so great or I can't wait to see what order you know we're playing teams and when it's like there's I think like a lot kind of you know behind the scenes here that were like obviously the NFL is, is is you know getting what they want out of it which is good teams playing good teams and if you're a mediocre team or a, you know a bad team like they don't they don't really care right they don't they don't want you to get you know they don't want you to have as many as many primetime games and, and whatever so um, I don't know I I, I think it, I think it will affect uh, you know if it, I think it does affect the teams and the outcome of the game but I don't think it's really like I don't I don't think it's measured well enough to be like okay this is exactly you know how this is affecting 
you know, the, the game's outcome or whatever. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to kind of, you know, briefly touch on that, especially because, you know, the NFL schedule came out. It's it's a great it's a great time to be a football fan, as, as it always is. Um, it's also a great time to be Tom Brady. <laughs> well, I mean, a 10-year, $375 million deal with Fox to be their lead analyst, when it, quote, like literally, quote-unquote, whenever he's done with football. Um I'm going to kind of walk through a little bit of the potential, you know, benefits or liabilities of this move, as well as kind of what's the realistic chance that this even happens, because I feel like there's a good chance that, well, yeah, based on what we just saw, who knows, right? Um, So, I think this is cool. I think it's good. I think it's coming at a strange time, obviously, Um, you know, basically like two months after he retired and then unretired and then came back to the Bucks and then they're head coach was fired and like all this stuff is happening um and then it's just like okay well i'm already thinking about the end of my career so this is what i'm gonna do afterwards right and it's like well tom brady i mean the ultimate competitor like all these you know tv shows made about him and man in the arena and everything it's like he like shouldn't you be focused on the season and like trying to you know go back and win another super bowl because clearly like that is what you're best at. That's what you've done more than any other player, more than any other organization in the entire league history. Um, obviously, I'm not doubting Tom Brady's ability to focus and get ready for the season, and it's also still the middle of May, so you know you have like four months until the season actually starts anyway, so whatever. Um, but I just thought this was such a strange timing for this move, but I mean, in terms of a business move, congratulations to Fox. I mean, come on. Like, you can't do better than this. You literally cannot do better than signing a lead analyst and having it be the best player to ever play the sport. And have that sport be the most popular sport in the, you know, in, 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 in America right now. Obviously, like, you know, there's been other sports that are more popular in the past. But, like, right now and for the next however long, just based on what we're, you know, what, what we've witnessed, the NFL is here to stay, and Tom Brady is the face of it, right? So, I think it's a great move for Fox. I just am a little bit questioning of kind of how this is going to work out. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, obviously I'm not skeptical. Like I said, I think it's a great move for both sides, because Tom Brady knows more about the NFL than anyone, really anyone, will ever even forget, uh, right? So, so, so when he's analyzing a football game, that's the kind of, that's the guy that you're going to want to hear from, right? I mean, like, you know, he, he, he is football. He understands it. He reads it. He does, he like, that's, he lives and breathes it, uh, and he, and he has for the last 20 years, uh, you know, in the NFL. So, Clearly, if there's anyone that you want to, to be doing this job, it's Tom Brady. So you got him. That's awesome. I hope that Tom Brady, in accepting this job and doing it to his to the best of his ability or whatever it may be, I think I just hope that he is himself. I, I hope that he comes out and is you know is 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 lively, is joking, is laughing, is making fun of people. Um, obviously, on top of you know being an analyst and and, and you know and, and explaining football to us in a way that makes sense and whatever. Like I think that he'll do a great job of that. But I I just hope that he and we've seen a little bit more out of the of this out of him in, in recent years. Kind of as you know, as he gets a little bit older and obviously has solidified himself as the as the best player of all time, I hope that he kind of just like lets go a little bit, right? And is just kind of more loose and and you know and does it you know does it in his own way, and in a way that is like going to be entertaining for everyone, um, but obviously in a way that's still professional enough to like clearly convey that hey, you know, you know more about football than anyone else in the entire world, right? Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's a I think it's a big move for both parts, 
obviously. Um, but I also think that it could be really good. I think that most people were like, oh, well, you know, what, why would you do that? Like, you, you've already made however much money in your playing career and your brand deals, not to mention your wife, who's even more rich than you are to begin with, right? Why do you need more money? I don't think it's that. I think that it's, it's I, I think he just loves the game, right? And so it's like, what would you do to, you know, to further your, you know, stu, stu, studious abilities or, you know, or just kind of wanting to stay in it, uh, you know, more than just being an analyst, you know, and, and explaining it to other people, being on TV and talking about it, watching it basically for your job, right? So I think that this is kind of a perfect transition for Tom Brady, who probably in those couple weeks that he was retired, again, it was only weeks, but I can't even imagine what he was doing. Like, you know, when he, he, he's literally used to, you know, working 17 hours a day, 365 days a year, uh, you know, on his craft, on his body, everything to be perfect, you know, the best player that he possibly can be. And then it's just like, oh, wow, wait, I have to just sit in my mansion and go in, like, all of these different bedrooms that I have? And uh, I actually have to go in the pool that I've had for 20 years but never used, you know? So, um, obviously just joking there. But, yeah, I think this is a cool move. I think it'll happen. I was kind of joking originally when I said that, but I—it it is just like I could totally see this being like a big announcement right now, and then one of two things happens: either like the Bucks win the Super Bowl this year, Tom Brady rides off in the sunset. He's like, okay, I'm actually I'm officially done right now. I don't need your stupid money, Fox. I'm just gonna I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do, whatever. Um, or option number two is. He really just is the Terminator, and he lives forever and plays forever, and he legit plays, like, another five years into his 50s, and, like, Fox is, like, we're five years down the road, and it's, like, 20, it's the year 2030, and, you know, we're, we're driving around flying cars, and Tom Brady's still the quarterback in the Bucks, right, or whatever team he moves to, um, in which case, it's like Fox is basically just like, okay, so we have uh, $375 million in this piggy bank right here, and uh, don't really know what we're going to do about it. A, and B, it's a 10-year deal. And so if Tom Brady finishes playing football at 50 years old, like, I mean, obviously, plenty of people work until, you know, they're, they're, they're in, you know, past their 60s or whatever, but it's like, does this guy really want to be an analyst until he's like 65? I don't think so. Um, so, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that, but I just thought it was really cool to kind of, you know, think about what's possible with this move, and obviously it was a good one for, I think, for both sides, but, um, but yeah, so, so obviously, right, we, we kind of, we'll just have to wait on this, I think, because it'll, it'll probably be a little while before Tom Brady's done playing football, but whenever it happens, it will, and I think it'll be good for all sides. Let's move on to the NHL. Uh, in the title, the, uh, the NHL scoring is off the chain right now. The, just lots of goals, right? I'm, I'm not talking about like crazy, you know, moves and dekes and slap shots from the blue line. No, I'm just talking about overall, there's a lot of scoring in the NHL. Teams are scoring lots of goals, plain and simple. And I think that that's the missing piece. We've seen it forever. Even me and Hayden are the biggest hockey fans, especially during the regular season. It's 82 games. It's a lot of hockey to watch. Hockey games are long. They're like three hours, right? And some games can really, you know, be finishing like one to nothing, which is obviously not the most entertaining. Um, but I think that just based on what we've seen in this playoffs, it is really, really going well. And I think the NHL is getting a lot more notoriety than it has in past years, not just because of the scoring, um, obviously just because it's, it's a major sport, and I think a lot more people are starting to get into it, a lot more people are seeing it on TV, it's being broadcasted more often, so I'm really happy for the hopes of the NHL. This is actually kind of what I wanted to say at the end of my piece here. I'm going to explain 
why we tend to see lower scoring in the playoffs and then also why we're seeing more scoring for this year. Okay, so to start off, well, first of all, there's more goal scoring, obviously, because five of the eight first-round playoff series went to a Game 7. I mean, are you kidding me? What is better, you know, media attention grabs than five of eight series going to a Game 7, right? And the other one was six. Well, one of the other ones was six, and the other was four because the Avalanche just absolutely rolled over the Predators. But regardless, that's crazy. That is insane. And they all took place on a weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I mean, what better, what more could you ask for from a sport who's kind of falling behind, well, not falling behind, I would say, you know, kind of have, has been a little bit lost for, for a while now, but it's kind of finding its way to the forefront. This is just exactly what they needed. In the playoffs, we always tend to see lower scoring games, okay? And it's because the defense the defense clamps down harder. You're playing your absolute butt off more, just way more than we normally would in any regular, you know, regular season game. And like I said, there's 82 games in regular season. That's a lot. And you're traveling. You're doing cross country. You're doing back-to-backs, right? There's a lot of factors at play in a regular season where a lot of times teams can just kind of take the night off. And so it's like, you know, if you're going to take the night off, the other team's going to score a bunch of goals. Or vice versa, you know, you're the team that's like, hey, you know, we're on the second second game of back-to-back road. It's, it's really a tough spot. we got to get up here, though. we got to get up. We're going to score a bunch of goals, and they do it, right? In the playoffs, everybody clamps down. You really get everybody's best effort on defense and on offense and everything. And so you didn't used to see very much scoring, or at least not as much as we're seeing uh, in this NHL playoffs. So kind of the question becomes, what you know, what happened? What changed here? And I think there's two reasons why we're seeing so much scoring, all right? The first one is, but I think the game is almost changing in a way where lots of teams are, are, are I think, focusing on the power play in order to score their goals, which it makes sense, right? And so for those of you who don't know, a power play is essentially when, you know, whenever there's a penalty on the ice, so, you know, a player trips another guy or, you know, he, he, he basically, like, you know, high sticks him or whatever it may be, they go to the, you know, to the penalty box for two minutes, so they're essentially taken off of the ice, and the other team still has all five of their guys on the ice, and so you only have four, and so there's essentially a man advantage for two minutes, which is a lot in hockey, especially with, you know, how fast the puck is moving and whatever. And so I think what, what teams are kind of realizing is like, hey, it, it's, it's almost like the three-point movement in the NBA or even the passing, you know, offense in the, in the NFL or, in, you know, all, all forms of football. is like, how are we going to score the, the most efficiently, right? Um, the argument, obviously, for the NBA has always been three points and three-point shots and layups are the, you know, highest percentage shots to, you know, to increase the, the, you know, the average level of your scoring. Well, in hockey, what's a better way to score than to, than to be doing that when you have more guys on the ice than the other team, right, during a power play? So I think that, honestly, analytics has found its way into hockey and is manifesting itself in this sense, which is, hey, if we have more guys than the other team does that's playing right now on the ice, we're going to have more chances to score, and so we're going to go all out for those two minutes while we have the man advantage as opposed to okay great we have a man advantage but you know we, we got to make sure we're not going to give up a you know a shorthanded goal that's probably not going to happen anyway right and so so i think that we kind of see a transition here in that sense of we're going to focus on the power play we're going to really try as much as we can to score a goal in the power play because right you you, you get a goal when the power play is going on you got it right um so secondly though i think there's an, i think there's another reason a little bit it's it's a little bit 
I mean, it's not, I don't think it's as, as much like analytically driven or, or, or whatever, but the um, pulling your goalie. So this is a phenomenon in hockey in which, like, it was popular, I think, it became popular a while ago, but, like, essentially if you're down one goal, right, and there's, like, two minutes left, you could opt to pull your goalie from your own net so there'd be nobody, you know, there'd be nobody guarding the net. It would just be wide open for the other team to be able to score. But you put a sixth man, so like, a, you know, a, 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 an attacker, right, uh, an offensive player on the field, and so essentially you're reversing or going the opposite way that the power play does, right? So instead of having five on four in the power play, if you pull your goalie, you're going to have six on five. And so a man advantage, as I just described, a man advantage is always going to be, you know, a, a better chance for you to be able to score. So what teams have been doing for the most part for the past, you know, while is really if they're down one goal, they'll pull their goalie with maybe a minute and a half to two minutes left, try to get that game-tying goal. Then they'll put their goalie back in the net because it's a tie, it's a tie game, you're going to overtime, whatever. Now, we're seeing guy teams pull their goalies down two with like four minutes left, right? Which is, which is almost double the length of time and the length of goals, you know, the difference in goals uh, by which your team may be winning or losing. So, I think, and, and, and obviously, this most of the time results in the other team scoring more goals. Because, like, if the net is wide open, realistically, all you have to do is just get the puck on your stick. And these guys are so good that, you know, one flick of the wrist and the, and the, and the puck's in the back of the net because there's no goalie on the other side, right? So that increases the scoring as well. Um, obviously, you have a six-on-five advantage. So if the team that's you know that has a six-on-five, if they score a goal, that's great. You know, it, but, but if they don't, the other team might shoot it in the back of their net and it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, uh, it'll kind of up the score that way too. So I think that those two you know, that combination of of things is really making the NHL you know goal scoring kind of increase, and I think that's exactly what they needed because I think the NHL was starting to kind of come into more prominence as of recently in the last few years, but like just kind of needed that extra, that extra you know that extra oomph, right? And I think we're getting it when these playoffs. Obviously, like I said. Probably mostly due to the fact that five of eight playoff series went to a game seven, and that's all you could ever hope for, for, you know, for for fans and, you know, whether it be, you know, fans of specific teams, fans of the game, whatever, like, you always want to see Game 7 hockey. That's, like, the best, right? Because everybody's trying their absolute hardest, and it's just like, who's going to win this game because the loser goes home? Um, but I think that in supplement of that, the amount of goals that are being scored makes the game more entertaining to watch, and so more people are drawn in. I think this is great for the sport, and I would really, I'm really excited to see kind of what the ratings are, you know, in comparison to... I, I would compare them probably to like the MLB playoffs, right? Because I think the NFL playoffs and the NBA playoffs are, playoffs are obviously going to have higher ratings than the MLB and the NHL. But I think the NHL has kind of always been number four, right? But I'd like to see, you know, what 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 their what their numbers are doing can compare to the other major sports. So that's our NHL talk. I am now going to move into the PGA Championship. So we're going to talk a little golf here, um, as we always do to end off the podcast. If you, you know, if you, if you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll find that a lot of times we talk about golf, okay? Because it's not the most popular sport. It's not the most entertaining sport to watch, to, to, to be completely honest. But it's a sport that me and Hayden really love, and, and you know, and especially during these times of the year when you have a major championship coming up, it's it's all the talk, and it's and it's so exciting, uh, you know, to talk about it and to watch it. So 
I'm just kind of going to briefly go over everything that you need to know. The, the, the you know, the, the the general information that you can be talking about with your friends if you find yourself watching it or, or whatever it may be. So the PGA Championship 2022 is taking place at Southern Hills Golf Club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now you're saying to yourself, what? How is a major championship in golf being played in Tulsa, Oklahoma? That's the most random place in the world. Well, yes, but this is actually a very famous course. Not 10 years ago. About 15 years ago, Tiger Woods won the PGA Championship at Southern Hills in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, in 2007. So they've hosted the PGA Championship here, here before. The course is absolutely beautiful, and it's really going to test these guys, okay? And that's, what I think, what we're looking to see in all of the major championships, as we do, you know, with the Masters. You know, I mean, it's like that every year, and pretty much all the majors, you know, kind of as well. Um because what we saw last week at the Byron Nelson, right, in, uh, in, in Texas was the winning score was K.H. Lee at minus 26. 26 under par. Jordan Smith was second. He was 25 under par. A bunch of guys were 24 under par. I mean, these scores are just outrageous. Now, obviously, that's a very easy course. These guys are pros. They're going to kill it, right? Southern Hills, this this golf club that they're going to be paying, playing at uh, for the PGA Championship is, like, very much longer and very much more windy than most of the courses on the PGA Tour. Just for example, even five years ago, the course was playing the average, I guess, I don't know, I mean, I think the average par five was about 540 yards, right? Which is, that's that's pretty average for the PGA Tour. They've increased it almost five years later to 630 yards for the par fives now. So that's an extra almost 100 yards that you have to, you know, obviously throughout the five shots that it takes to score a, a par on that hole, you have to hit it a lot farther with everything you're doing. The toughest part of this golf course is the greens, okay? Because they're very firm and fast. Now, when you hear people talk about that, you're like, what the heck does that mean? It means that the ground is harder, and so when the ball hits it, it's not just going to sit down and, and, and create a little divot in the ground and basically just you know stop right where, right where it hits, right? If you hit the front of the green and, and the ball starts rolling, it could roll all the way past the other side of the green, and basically you, know, you could end up in the rough on the other side. And so... That's what's going to be happening here. And so you're going to hear a lot of people saying, like, oh, my gosh, this course is so long. The, you know, the best drivers in the world are going to – they're the only ones who are going to have a chance at this course. I think it's the opposite, actually. I think the course is actually not that long besides the par fives. And then green – around the green game is really what's going to be, you know, the majority of the focus here. Um because if you're if you're not able to control what the ball does when it hits the greens and sails past the holes, you're not going to be able to score well here, right? So so your your close wedges, your putters, those are going to be what's really key at this course. The only thing is, pretty much all the best players in the world are going to be playing in this tournament, and pretty much all of them are great at everything. So now I got to get, in, get, get into the piece of who is going to potentially win this year's PGA Championship. Obviously, we know that with golf, it's completely random. Anybody can win. But there are a class of PGA players who are, you know, well above the rest of the field, okay? And so a few of those players... You know, and, and you've probably heard before, right? You have your Dustin Johnsons, Brooks Kepka, John Rahm, you know, Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy. I mean, those guys have been the guys for, you know, forever now. For the Well, not forever, but for the past, you know, better part of the past 10 years, right? And so 
they're all playing and they're all going to be, you know, pretty high favorites to, to win this tournament. And it's because they are best at everything. And so you see a lot of times in these major tournaments, the, the players who are the best at everything tend to do well. And that sounds, you know, that sounds very simple the way I said it. But let's think about, you know, let's think about a course like Torrey Pines or Pebble Beach in California where really big drive, you know, guys that drive the ball really far are the guys who do well at those types of courses, okay? So Tom Hoagie won Torrey Pines and Luke List won Pebble Beach. And so it's like, who are those guys? They have no PGA Tour wins besides those, but they're long hitters. They're, you know, their around the green game isn't that great, but it doesn't really matter because those courses are long and that's what, it, you know, that's what it is required to kind of win those tournaments. Here, it's everything. So you're going to see probably one of the better players win this PGA Championship. I hate to be like, you know, obviously it sounds very, you know, sounds very simple. And now that I said that, it'll probably be like, you know, Alex Noren who wins or, you know, or something like that. Go little Matthew Neesmith in there. Um, but regardless, I think that, you know, you're going to hear a lot of talk, but I think that, you know, the, the best part is it, it's really going to be anyone's, anyone's game. And I think that it's going to be a really exciting tournament. And so, you know, obviously I mentioned those, you know, the studs, the guys at the top who are probably going to win. But, like, I didn't even mention, you know, Patrick Cantlay, he won the FedEx Cup last year, right? He won $50 million because over the course of the season, he accrued the most FedEx Cup points based on where he positions, where he finished, all this other stuff. Um, you know, Scotty Scheffler. Only the best, you know, the number one ranked player in the world right now. He's won three times this year alone, including the Masters. Uh, this guy's absolutely on fire. He can very much so, uh, you know, win this tournament. Colin Morikawa. He's won two of the last four majors that he's played in, right? I mean, he won, you know, he, he won the U.S. Open two years ago. He won the, uh, the Open Championship last year. I mean, this guy is, is on a tear as well. So there's a lot of young talent in the game right now. And I, I'm very excited to see what this course brings. Um, and I'm very, I would be very excited to see someone random win because I think that that would be entertaining for all of us. Um, the major, the other thing that you're going to hear is Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Tiger Woods is going to be playing. I do not think he's going to play well. He played okay. Well, he made the cut at the Masters, and then he didn't play well at all after that. He almost finished dead last after making the cut, which it's it's impressive enough that he made the cut. You know, great for Tiger. He's playing in this week. I don't think he's going to do very well. But, you know, let's hope for the best. Phil Mickelson is a whole different ball of wax. Me and Hayden have talked about this at length on the podcast before, you know, very, very many other topics. He, he is an absolute PR nightmare right now. And, and the interesting thing about Phil Mickelson is that he won the PGA Championship last year at the age of 50. He's the oldest player to ever win a major he came out of absolutely nowhere and won this, won the, you know, won that, won the PGA Championship. And so it's so crazy that like, you know, everybody's talking about like, oh, you know, who's the defending champion? Who's gonna be, you know, defending their title? Well, it's Phil Mickelson, but he basically said he was gonna play, and then I think the PGA Tour is just like, uh, yeah, we don't think so. There's too much going on here. I, that's that's probably not gonna happen. So, um, so that's your PGA Tour breakdown. That's your PGA Championship breakdown. I hope that you do watch it. Um, if if anything, just on Sunday, right? So you get a Get a little morning F1 action in there. The race is going to be starting around 9. Perfect timing because by the time it ends, you grab yourself a snack, you grab yourself some lunch, and you turn on the final round of the PGA Championship. And obviously, there's going to be some, you know, some NHL and NBA uh, playoff action in there as well. But 
you know, definitely tune in and, and watch this golf tournament because it's going to be it's going to be really great. And then we're setting up for you know U.S. Open uh, in Rochester, New York, coming up here in that Oak Hill, Oak Hill, uh, in uh, about a month. So about a month from from this weekend is going to be the U.S. Open as well. So we'll obviously be talking about that as it comes. Uh, you know, as it comes closer, but that will bring this show to a close. I hope you enjoyed it. It was just me talking about sports, and that's it for over an hour. Um, but that's what I love to do, and that's what I'm here to do. This is my hobby. This is what I love. This is my passion, uh, and I hope that you guys were all able to share in it as well. Um, this is our 51st episode. I was actually supposed to mention this at the beginning of the episode. We had our 50th episode of season two, that is, um, our last episode when we, you know, I mean, Hayden, we're talking about kind of got lost in the lost in the sauce a little bit there uh, over the weekend. It was it was pretty busy and whatnot. So um, yes, so congrats to us for making it past 50 episodes. Obviously, uh, you know, we, we hope to make make it past uh, you know 5,000 if that's possible. Um, I'm, I'm here, you know we're, we're going to be here doing this for for quite a while. Um, couple show notes so first of all make sure to follow the twitter account uh the, the twitter handle is at first down rd pod on twitter so you, i mean it's, it's pretty simple you just type in first down rd uh it should pop up um and, and and that way you can give us a follow you can see what's going on there we don't post too often but i'm gonna I'm, we're gonna get better about it neither of us have a personal twitter account so we're kind of learning it as we go uh but we post you know short videos of kind of our takes and whatnot uh so so be sure to give us a follow over there also in terms of you know kind of scheduling notes and whatever Hayden is on his cruise until I think he gets back either Friday or Saturday of this week and so obviously we're going to have another episode that comes out at the end of this week might be Friday might be Saturday it might be me alone it might be me with Hayden but you know It'll be a surprise for you guys. So there, so there you go. That's something to look forward to is, is who's going to be on the next episode. But uh, that'll do it for this episode. I, I do hope that you enjoyed. Um, and we will see you next time on the First Down Rundown Podcast.